Amen. Well, if you would turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5, we're going to look at the genealogy of Seth. Last time we were in Genesis, we looked at the beginning of public worship in the godly line of Seth. And that while Cain and his line were busy with worldly achievements, men and women of the world, living in the world, making a name for themselves in the world, the line of Seth was known for something else. The line of Seth began to call upon the name of the Lord. They sought to lift up not their name, but the name of the Lord. They wanted to live for him and exalt him and glorify his name in this world. Because they recognized that this world is passing away. And that they're sojourners and pilgrims in this world. They are looking for a better city. A city that has foundations whose builder and maker is God. Even before the flood of Noah, the people of God believed in the promise of God, the gospel of God, that the Savior would come, the seed of the woman, to crush the head of the serpent. And they lived by faith and they called upon the Lord. They worshipped him in the world before a watching world. They said there's a better way to live. Not for ourselves, but for God. And this distinction will become more and more clear as we go through this genealogy of the line of Seth. Much, much longer than the line of Cain. We didn't get their ages. We didn't get how long they lived. God showed that he cared for them. He continued to give them good gifts and and graces, common graces. They developed culture. It was a blessing to all. But they lived for that. That's all they had. They didn't give it to God. They didn't do it to glorify God. And we saw those things, as good as they are, as much as they are to help us, they don't save us and they can't deliver us from sin or make us more like Christ. Unfortunately, a lot of the church doesn't understand that. That if we can just be more, I don't know, culturally relevant, we can change people. It doesn't work. God's word changes people. That's what we need. And that's what we'll see in the line of Seth. Much longer line, more details. God keeps his people. He gives them gifts and graces, 10 generations from Adam all the way to Noah through Seth. 10 generations, over a thousand years of history. And this text is scripture. It's profitable for us. There are probably passages, there are definitely passages that I would not preach from the pulpit. Not that it's not scripture, but it would be pretty laborious to go through certain sections of Leviticus or Numbers or First Chronicles. Good to study, good to talk about in a, in a Sunday school class, but verse by verse preaching would be laborious for the church, I think. But I don't think so with this genealogy. I think in this genealogy, we're going to see some things. And I want you to notice two particular phrases that you're going to see over and over again. He had sons and daughters. He had sons and daughters. Adam and Eve sinned. But God had said to them, God had created them to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth. And God in his mercy did not destroy them when they sinned. And so God in his mercy enables them, even as sinners, to continue to be fruitful and multiply. We see that grace. They do. Everyone in this line has sons and daughters. But also, in these ten generations, all but one, you'll read, and he died. And he died. And he died. They lived very, very long, but in the end, he died. God said in the garden, the day you eat of it, you shall die. And since then, sin comes to all men, and so all men die. And so we see that in this text. And he died, and he died, and he died. And yet, 
While each one died, again, he first brought about the next generation, that the human race would continue. And it's not so much even that the human race would continue in some fallen state, but that the human race would continue to the point where God's promise would come to pass. What we're seeing here is God showing us that by his grace, he was preserving man. He was keeping man going until the promised seed should come. The seed that would undo the curse, that would bring salvation to the people of God. What we see in this text, beloved, is a record of the faithfulness of God preserving the human race in order to bring about the salvation that he had declared in the garden would come by grace alone. Let's pray as we turn to God's word. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this word. I pray it would be beneficial and fruitful for your people by your spirit. Write your word on our hearts this morning and let this text be powerful in us for your name's sake. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Hear now the word of the Lord from Genesis chapter five. This is God's holy word. This is the book of the genealogy of Adam. In the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them and called them mankind in the day they were created. And Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness after his image, and he named him Seth. After he begot Seth, the days of Adam were 800 years, and he had sons and daughters. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Seth lived 105 years and begot Enosh. After he begot Enosh... Seth lived 807 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Enosh lived 90 years and begot Canaan. And after he begot Canaan, Enosh lived 815 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. Canaan lived 70 years and begot begot Mahalalel. After he begot Mahalalel, Canaan lived 840 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Canaan were 910 years, and he died. Mahalalel lived 65 years and begot Jared. After he begot Jared, Mahalalel lived 830 years. And he had sons and daughters. So all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. Jared lived 162 years and begot Enoch. After he begot Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. Enoch lived 65 years and begot Methuselah. After he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Methuselah lived 187 years and begot Lamech. After he begot Lamech, Methuselah lived 782 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. Lamech lived 182 years, and he had a son, and he called his name Noah, saying, This one will comfort us, 
concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord God has cursed. After he begot Noah, Lamech lived 595 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died. And Noah was 500 years old and Noah begot Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The word of the Lord. I want you to notice, first of all, this morning, the accuracy of the genealogy. I want you to notice the accuracy of the genealogy. This genealogy is not unique. There are other genealogies in ancient records. The Assyrian king's list, um, Herodotus gives genealogies. But this genealogy is unique in that it's not a list of kings. It's not a list of royalty. It's a list of individuals, people who lived and died, and it gives their particular offspring who carries on this line that's being preserved. It doesn't say that this one is the firstborn, but it's the one through whom the line is continued. The big thing that we noticed in this text is the much larger lifespan, isn't it? And of course, liberal scholars will see this and say, well, it's not true. People don't live that long, and it's not the word of God, and therefore, or it is the word of God, but the word of God Heirs, help me with that one, please. It's the word of God, but it errs. Beloved, it's either the word of God or it's not. It's either true or it's not. You can try to make it into some kind of allegory, I guess. It seems to me that the text is true. I think we have many reasons to believe it. I think it is believable. It's pointless to try to figure out how they had longer lifespans. There have been many sort of theories. Perhaps it was that this canopy protected the earth from the harmful rays of the sun and only what was healthy came through. The climate may have been and certainly was different. We know that. It would have been much more temperate over the whole earth. There wouldn't have been polar ice caps at the north and south pole. We wouldn't have had that. It would have been this very nice temperature all year round. Notice also, we know this is true, the magnetic field of the earth would have been much stronger because it gets weaker. We can measure that. And many scholars point out with a stronger magnetic field, man would have lived longer. Creatures would have grown bigger. By the way, we find them. They find all sorts of creatures. Groundhogs as big as bears, they have them. Mosquitoes as big as eagles. Dragonflies as big. They find all those fossils. Creatures were much larger. Why? Why were all the creatures larger? We know that. That's a fact would be that the magnetic field was strong. Perhaps the, the atmosphere had much more oxygen. Perhaps it was the food in the ground because the soil was still perfect from the way God made it that all of the food gave perfect nutrition. And many other things like that. The genetic code being much more uh, pure, not diverse, not, not no corruptions yet. Very, very, uh, almost no, there would have been almost no g- genetic anomalies or de- defects or anything because that takes time and generations to spread out. There's a lot of reasons why maybe they lived longer. Maybe it was just that God made it that they lived longer then. That it was his decree. The Bible doesn't say There are many, many creatures that live a long time right now. We know that sponges and corals, which are living creatures, live thousands of years. A single sponge, thousands of years. That's a fact. These these aren't plants. Also, uh, some examples, they found a mollusk off the coast of Iceland very recently. They dated him as 507 years old. 
a mollusk, a creature, 507 years old, still alive. They found a clam about 20 years ago that counting the growth rings, very, very accurate, it was 405 years old. Clam. Tortoises regularly live over 250 years. In fact, Charles Darwin's pet tortoise, yes, that Charles Darwin, died in 2006. Tortoises live a long time, right? A lot of creatures live a long time. If we go into the plants, there was a pine tree in Nevada that scholars said was 4,862 years old. And some guy cut it down. (laughs) It was named Prometheus because it was so old. In California right now, supposedly, there's a redwood tree, a tree that, li- that is, I think, no, it's, a, it's another pine tree, sorry, a pine tree that's dated to be 4,854 years old. They named it Methuselah. You can look it up online. There are trees that are thousands of years old. Redwood trees in California regularly live 2,000 years or more. Olive trees that we see in the Bible can live well over 1,000 years. There are creatures that live a long time. And on the other side of it, there are creatures who live a really short time, right? We all have, many of you have dogs. And we talk about our dogs and how old they are. But then we talk about dog years, right? Well, my dog is five, which means in dog years, he's what? 35 or six or seven, whatever it is. You multiply it by because dogs only live about a seventh as long as people. You know, 10, 12, 14 years for little dogs. Mosquitoes. And certain insects live weeks, their whole lifespan. They're born, they mature, they mate, they die, and it's three, four, five weeks. That's just a fact. We also know that aging can be sped up. In humans, it can be sped up. There's a condition, a scientific condition. I remember watching these infomercials as a kid, seeing these little children who look like old men and women. And there's a name for this. It affects one in four million children. It's called progeria. It's an aging disease. It causes baldness and wrinkles by age 10. And the kids all die at puberty from heart disease or stroke. Because they age that fast. If aging can be sped up, why couldn't it be slowed down? There's no reason. And in fact, we see many, many other affirmations that outside the Bible that human beings did live a much longer life. Many records. One of the most famous is the Sumerian king's list that's dated to about 2000 BC. The Sumerian king's list lists eight or possibly ten, depending on which manuscript you're looking at, kings and their cities and how long they reign. Their reign, not their lifespan. The youngest king in the Sumerian king's list reign was 18,000 years. The longest was 43,000 years. Altogether, these eight or ten kings reigned for 242,000 years. Now, nobody believes that it's true. But the Sumerian king's list interestingly says this. After listing these eight or ten kings who reigned for exactly 241,200 years, it says this. These are the five cities and the eight kings who ruled them, and then the flood swept over the earth. Every ancient culture, by the way, has a record of, if if they have ancient records, they have a record of a universal flood that destroyed everybody, and usually it's because the gods were angry, which is what 
the scripture actually truthfully teaches in their twisted memory that has errors accrued to it. How else could that be? That every culture, separate cultures, no contact with each other, they all have this record. There was this great flood. It destroyed everybody. And after the flood, people lived a lot shorter. That's what the Sumerian Kings list says. And that's why I said it. Okay, these ridiculously long lifespans beforehand. But the central fact is that people lived a long time. That's what we're noticing, the grain of truth that the Sumerians still remembered when they came up with this list, though they, it had been distorted by them. But right after the flood swept over the earth, then we get a list, same, same document, of 39 kings. And the longest reign here is 1,560 years. The shortest of the 8 to 10 before the flood, 18,000 years. The longest after the flood, 1,500 is still way too long. But do you see how really, really long lives before a great flood and then much, much shorter lives? And this isn't the only record that does this. This isn't the only ancient document that says this. You can read about it in Hesiod's Works and Days. And there are others that say there was this long period where people lived a really long time, then there was this great flood, and then people didn't live so long anymore. And that's exactly what the Bible says. So why should we question the scriptures? When in fact God could have done it this way, and God actually says that he did it this way. One of the things I think that, we, that gets in our way is, the, again, the false theory of evolution, which has been proven false and is absurd if you think about it, that things randomly completely, randomly, without any purpose, continue to evolve and yet get better. How can that be? It's a contradiction. It's self-refuting when you really think about it. But anyway, because of evolution, we think things are progressing. We think things are getting better. And oftentimes, the life expectancy will be put before us, right? And it'll say, well, you know, look how much longer we're living now. And at colonial times, life expectancy was like 40 or something like that. Now, does anyone in here think, wrongly, mistakenly, that that means in colonial times, a 35-year-old would be equivalent to a 75-year-old today? Life expectancy was lower in colonial times. That's because life expectancy is figured on a pure average of how long people live. Let me give you an example. If you have a nation in which there are two people, the one lives to be 100 and dies, the other one dies at birth, the life expectancy of that nation is said to be 50. That's how they figure it. So as infant mortality rates go down, life expectancy goes up. And with modern medicine and antibiotics, a lot less babies die when they're young. And that's why life expectancy is higher. Robin and I both had this interesting thing that I bet you almost all of you probably have if you look. Both of our dads had older brothers who died before they were two years old. Because a sickness came through and it killed off, you know, a bunch of infants. Because that's what sicknesses did before antibiotics. My dad's oldest brother was like 14 months old and died. Most families had babies who died or babies who died at birth because, you know, they're breached and they weren't able to do the things that they do today. Or women would die in childbirth. And so that's why life expectancy has been going up and has gone up. In fact, right now, you can go online. And you can look up the life expectancy of the different countries. The highest countries that have the highest life expectancy, Hong Kong, Japan, Monaco, Switzerland, Italy, sometimes a little bit different. And this is according to Worldometers, World Population Review, Wikipedia, CIA, others. Right now, these countries, so the ones I mentioned, Japan, Switzerland, Italy, Italy, 
life expectancy anywhere from 84 to 87. They all vary a little bit, but in the mid-80s. That's the life expectancy if you live in Italy. If you live in Chad, Nigeria, the Central Republic of Africa, Afghanistan, or Lesotho, your life expectancy right now, 2023, 52 to 56. Now, does anybody think that a 52-year-old in Afghanistan is as old as an 85-year-old in Japan? No. People age at the same rate. People have been aging at the same rate since Moses wrote in our call to worship in 1500 BC, the years of a man are 70, or if by reason of strength, 80. And that's about what we get before we die. By the way, in the United States right now, life expectancy has been falling. Did you know that? So much for evolution. This year, April 5th, LA Times, quote, America's decline in life expectancy speaks volumes about our problems. This year, April 4th, Washington Post, declining life expectancy in the U.S. This year, March 25th, NPR. By the way, you notice I'm naming these bastions of conservative (laughs) media. The sad state of U.S. life expectancy down to 76 years. When I was a kid, it was 78 or 79. This is the United States. And don't think that it's COVID or the government response to COVID that caused so much uh, trouble. January 2nd, 2020. U.S. life expectancy is falling and has been since 2014. Part of it's that takes longer to get medical appointments now. And you, you gotta be, you're put off and so you know, people die. But life expectancy, beloved, is just the average. People have been aging the same. There was a time when in the will of God... Man aged a lot slower. Most think it's because, again, that there needed, people needed to live longer. There was you know, only Adam and Eve, and so you had to have a lot of children to begin to populate the world. But I just want you to notice the accuracy of the genealogy. There's no reason not to believe this. The Bible says it. Other records corroborate the same kind of thing. And, in fact, we see many creatures that live a long time. Secondly, I want you to notice the message of the genealogy. I want you to notice the message of the genealogy. First of all, we see creation continues. Notice we go back to creation in chapter 5. We've been moving away from creation, and now we get for the third time the direct witness of Scripture that God made all things. God created man. God created man in his likeness, it says here. It doesn't say image and likeness, as it said back in Genesis 1. That's because image and likeness is is a figure of speech. It's not Image is one thing and likeness is another. It's called a hendiatus. We use two words to say the same thing, but with emphasis, right? I might say, you know, she is such a lovely and pretty girl. I don't mean that, you know, well, lovely is her physical appearance and and pretty is her, you know, character or something. I just mean she's really pretty, right? Or he is such a strong and mighty man. Well, you know, mighty refers to his lower body strength and strong refers, no. It just means he's a really powerful guy. Right? So image and likeness. Here it just says likeness because it means image. It means likeness. God made man like God, which is the highest exaltation that man could have. We are made in the image and likeness of God. It is God who made man. It was not billions of years of mindless and random and yet somehow enhancing and bettering and more complicating evolution, which is contradictory. But it is God's specific creation. And man isn't evolving. Man's never evolved. Man is the same now as he was then. We have, you know, more technology because we build on the generation before and the generation before and the generation before. 
But if God were to wipe out everybody except for a few families in the world and we had to start off again, it would be generations before we'd get out of the Stone Age because it would take a while to make things that would allow us to melt down metals in, in, in advance. But God allows civilization to continue. And so, yes, we progress in that sense. Learning increases. But man's not changing. Man's not evolving. And notice, God again mentions the two sexes in this text. And here I want to I read the text to you in, in keeping one word the same as it is in Hebrew. The word Hebrew, the Hebrew word for Adam, Adam, is also the word for man. And I'm going to keep it as the Hebrew text says because the English kind of obscures it. I'm going to read the first three verses of our text, again, keeping the word Adam as it is in Hebrew. This is the book of the genealogy of Adam. In the day that God created Adam, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them, male and female. He blessed them and he called them Adam. In the day they were created. And Adam lived 130 years and begot a son, etc. It's Adam, Adam, Adam. There's no mankind. There's no man different from Adam. Adam is man. And man is man and woman. Mankind. That's what you see in this text. Two sexes, verse 2, male and female, and God called them Adam. Two sexes, two persons under one name. What does that teach you? It teaches you, first of all, that both man and woman are image of God. And it teaches you that man and woman are fully equal. Ontologically equal. One human being. One name. Two persons. We do the exact same thing when we prove the Trinity. The probably most gone, uh, go-to verse to prove the Trinity is Matthew 28, 19. You could read dozens of verses or sermons on it, hundreds of sermons, going back to Chrysostom, going back to Augustine, going back to the Cappadocian fathers like Cyril and others, Basil, all arguing that because one name has three persons under it, the Father has to be equal to the Son, and the Son has to be equal to the Spirit because Jesus says, baptizing them in the name singular of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Those three persons being under one name proves that they are ontologically equal. Ontology is being. There is one being of God, one essence, three persons. Male and female, one name, Adam, necessarily implies in my understanding that man and woman are ontologically the same, equal. Male and female are different. And God determines that difference. And that difference is in creation. God made male. God made female. It is not a social construct. It is creation. God makes them man, and God made them man-male, and God made them man-female. Human being equal. Sexes different. And it's creation. It's not something that we come up with on our own or can change. And I want you to notice that. God has made man. Which means that we can only complete and have our fullness and our fulfillment and meaning if we live as who we are. I didn't make myself this way. Therefore, I can't determine what the best way for me to live is. I have to go back to the manual, as it were. You know, if you buy a computer, you can't just make it do what you want to do. You have to operate it according to how it's made. And that's true for human beings. No wonder so many people don't 
have meaning or fulfillment or, or wrestling with so many horrible psychological maladies because they don't believe that they're made in the image of God, so they don't know how to live. And they try this and they try that and, they try, and it not, doesn't work and they're not happy and they, they can't find fulfillment because they're not living as one who is made in the image of God. I think it was a, Augustine who said that God has made us for himself. And unless we, unless we live for him, we're not going to find meaning. One of the other ones, that God made us with a God-shaped vacuum. And unless it's filled with God, we're not going to be able to, to find satisfaction and joy. And so we see man's nature made in the image of God. But also we see sin passed on. Look at it in verse 3. Adam lived 130 years. He begot a son in his own likeness after his image. And he named him Seth. Likeness, image, Seth. Image of God passed on, yes. But Adam is sinful now. Adam is corrupted. And guess what Adam also passed on? He passed on a sinful nature. That's why Adam died and Seth died and Enosh died and they died because sin spread to all men and so all died. Jesus said that it has to be this way. That which is of the flesh is flesh. We have to be born again in order to escape the cycle of death, in order to have eternal life. He said to Nicodemus, that which is of the flesh is flesh. The only thing that can come from sinful flesh is more sinful flesh. Adam and Eve sinned. If God would have brought justice, he would have put them both in hell. There would have been no children. God was merciful, but that means these two sinners are going to, they're going to have more sinners when they have children. That's the doctrine of original sin. We don't sin, we don't become sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. David said, in sin my mother conceived me. Not that intercourse between a married man and a married woman are, are, is sinful, but that the very conception itself brought about a sinful zygote. And David was sinful as soon as he was conceived. And so are all of us. We have a sin nature. We inherit it. And again, it was not even justice that that be the case. If it was justice, Adam and Eve would have gone straight to hell. No kids. God was merciful to allow them to live. But if they live, they're going to have sinful children. And so we have sinful children. And not all of you, if you are a parent, you know that you have sinful children. Do you not? I remember when I first saw it in our oldest son. I love this. None of my kids are in church now, so I could tell all the stories about them. And Calvin was really young, and we were sitting him down for his nap, you know, in the crib. And he starts crying and crying, and we shut the door because, you know, you're going to take a nap, son. And all of a sudden, he gets quiet after crying for a while, realizing we're not going to get him. And so I just peek in, you know, to make sure he's okay. It's, it's, when, you have, when you only have one child, you're always afraid that, you know, they're going to break or something. After you have two or three, they could fall down the steps. Oh, he's okay. <laughs> so, you know, he's quiet. So we're peeking in to, you know, make sure he's not like suffocating or something. So I look in the door and he's sitting up in the crib and he sees me. He's fine. As soon as he sees me, rah, rah, I close the door and I said to Robin, well, our son's a sinner just like us. He's trying to manipulate me. He didn't need me. He just didn't want to take his nap already at like six months, seven. I don't know. As soon as we're able to think, we think self first, right? You don't have to teach your kids how to say, no, mine. You have to teach them how to say, please, wait your turn. That's true for every kid because we have a sin nature and we have to be taught to do what is right. And so each one dies, each one carrying on the sin nature. Now we know by the time of Seth, I'm sorry, by the time of Noah, Ten years, ten, ten generations later, there would have been thousands of the seed of Seth. 
And here's where I want to talk about something in particular. We talk about covenant children in this church. You know, Pastor Appleton mentioned the blessings of the covenant. We believe that. The covenant is, is a wonderful blessing. In other words, that we who are saved and our children receive the promises. God counts our children as members of the church. That's why we baptize them, by the way. We don't baptize them to make them members. They are members. That's why I say as soon as a child's born, the newest member of our church, they have a right to baptism because they're members. And they're members because they belong to you. Because you're a believer and you are part of the church. And so the promise goes to you and to your children. And it's a wonderful blessing. And there's all sorts of advantages to being in the covenant. You children who are here today, who can hear me, I want to just remind you of that. That it's wonderful that you get to hear the word of God. A lot of your friends don't hear the word of God. It's wonderful that you get to see your parents pray and read scripture and come to church and you get to sing to God. A lot of your friends never do that. This is what it, these are some of the blessings that you have because you're in a covenant family, a family that believes in Jesus, that lives for Jesus. But it's not enough. You can't say, well, mom and dad take me to church and so, you know, I'm going to heaven. You have to believe. You too, children, have to believe. Jesus has to become your savior. He has to save you. You have to believe from, uh, in Christ. You have to repent from your sins because the covenant's not enough. You have to have faith. The covenant puts you in the arena where God ordinarily works. But it's not automatic or a guarantee. You have to believe and you have to repent. The other side of the covenant that we don't talk about a lot is also true. You have more responsibility because you've heard the gospel. For you to walk away from Christ is much more serious than for a pagan who's never heard of these things. The, God, the, the covenant puts responsibilities on you. To be a covenant breaker, it would be better to have never heard the gospel than to have sat in the church, seen the blessings of God on your family, and then to walk away and to choose darkness over light, over all those wonderful advantages that God gave you and put in you. The covenant brings greater responsibilities. And I just say all that to say, beloved, that though God is keeping the line of Seth going, it's not because of the line of Seth that salvation came. This godly line is only godly by the grace of God. Because when we get to Noah, as we'll see, Lord willing, next time, there's only one family left. Seth would have had thousands of blood descendants on the earth. Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands by the time of Noah. And yet only Noah's family believes the covenant wasn't enough. They had to make it their own. They had to believe and pass it on to the next generation. And so I want you to notice the theme of the genealogy. Thirdly, the theme of the genealogy. The theme of the genealogy is God's faithfulness. It's not man's faithfulness. Nobody's keeping themselves. Nobody's causing God's blessings to come because of their merit. Everyone in this line is a sinner. Everyone in this line deserves to be cast off. God is keeping them. God's faithfulness is seen. Though the godly line dwindles to one family, God promised that the seed of the woman would come. And so that one family does still believe. Look at it at the end of our text in chapter, I'm sorry, in chapter 5, yes, verse 28 and 29. When Lamech is born, not the Lamech of, of Cain's line, right? Some of these names are the same. There's Enoch and Cain's line, Enoch and Seth's line. Lamech and Cain's line, Lamech and Seth's line. There's Methuselah in Enoch's or in uh, Seth's line, and then there's Methuselah in Cain. So similar, they would have had similar outward lives, the same hardships, the same joys, right? They're on the same planet. Outwardly, a lot of times we look the same. But Lamech believed. 
Look how he, this is over a thousand years after creation. And he called his name Noah, saying, this one will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. He's quoting from scripture a thousand years before in Genesis chapter 3 when God said to them, that there will, to the woman, that you'll bring forth children with sorrow. It's the word toil in English. And he said to Adam that by the pain, uh, you'll bring, by, by the pain of your uh, work, you'll have to earn your living. And that's the same word toil here. And God himself put the curse on the ground. Lamech remembers all those things. Notice what faith he has in the word of God. He's confessing, yes, there is toil and it's hard. And there's a curse on the ground and it's hard. But God has promised rest. He's promised the seed of the woman. And he names his son Noah, which in Hebrew means rest. And he says, because this one will nacham, which is comfort. You can hear the nach, nach. And he said, this one. And I don't believe he meant necessarily that it was Noah, but he, he's putting his faith in the promise of God. Though they're down to one family, Lamech confesses, God's going to bring his promise. God's going to bring rest. And think of it, beloved, though Noah was not the Messiah, Jesus is, yet there was no greater type of Messiah in the Bible, it seems to me, than Noah. Because the Bible says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. If you didn't believe Noah's preaching and get on, get on that ark, when God's judgment came, you were swept away. And by the way, if you don't believe in Jesus and come to God through the cross, when God's judgment comes, you'll be swept away. There was no type quite like Noah. And God did give much rest to the world through Noah. He swept all the wicked away. The human race gets to start again. One family, and it's a covenant family that believes. And very quickly, we see the unbelieving lines coming from them. And yet still, what rest? No more violence in the earth. No more wickedness. No more false religion. For a couple of generations, again, rest. As they remember God's promises, God renews the earth through Noah. And so this is God's faithfulness, beloved. God continues to preserve a people for himself. Noah is born 1,056 years after creation. Adam's been dead for 126 years. And yet God keeps his promises and God's people continued to believe. And so fourthly and lastly, I want you to notice the gospel of the genealogy. Notice the gospel of the genealogy. Before we get to Noah, the 10th generation... There's one other break in the genealogy. And of course, you all see it beginning in verse 22. And it's the seventh generation. Remember I said to you, when we got Cain's line, the purpose for Cain's line was to showing us the culmination of wickedness in man when he lives without God. Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. And he started his own city and his own line. And they begin to make tools and name and culture and all this stuff. And yeah, they're prospering in the world. But in the seventh generation, Cain's son Lamech, is a murderer just like Cain, but way worse than Cain. Cain had the sense to be fearful, to be afraid of God's judgment. Lamech mocks God's judgment. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, I'll be avenged seventy-sevenfold. And he takes two wives. He perverts marriage. He's a sexual pervert. He's an oppressor of the weak. He treats his wives as property because he multiplies them so he can have more kids, so he can have more strength. Here is a bully. Here is a pervert. Here is a murderer. Here is a braggart. This is living without God. Cain, all the way to Lamech, seven generations. What's it like when we live with God? What's it like when we walk with God? That's the story of Enoch. If you count it, Enoch is two the seventh generation. Seven in Hebrew is perfect. Completion. The perfect wickedness, as it were, is Lamech. The perfect righteousness, as it were, is Enoch. Do you see what it says about Enoch? 
in verse 22. After he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God. Enoch walked with God 300 years. He didn't walk with God when it was really hard and then he went back to the world. He didn't walk with God sporadically. He consistently walked with God 300 years, good times, bad times, blessings, trials. He walked with God. What does it mean to walk with God? Well, the Bible pictures, right? Life as a, as a journey. What are we saying about it? Thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have a path. I'm walking a path, right? The Bible talks about walking on the straight and narrow, going through the straight gate, the narrow gate, not going on the broad way. We're not to go on the crooked paths. To live for the Lord is to walk with the Lord. And to walk with the Lord, you have to agree with the Lord. Amos chapter 3 3 says, two cannot walk together unless they're agreed. You can't walk with God unless you agree with him that you're a sinner. You can't walk with God unless you agree with him that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. You can't walk with God unless you agree that Christ is coming again, that he rose again from the dead, that he was born of a virgin. You can't walk with God. If you don't believe his word, if you don't judge right and wrong by what his word says, not by what the world is saying, and that's changing at a pretty rapid pace in my lifetime. Calvin says this, quote, we easily suffer ourselves to be led hither and thither by the multitude. For everyone thinks what is commonly received must be right and lawful. And I've mentioned to you before, in the year 2000, the vast majority of Americans thought gay marriage was wrong. Because the Bible says it's wrong and it's unnatural, we know that. The majority, a a growing majority of Americans now say it's right. Why? Because that's what the government said. So I'm going to just make my morals on what the government says. And pretty soon when they get to where it's man and child and God forbid man and animal, you don't think that's coming? It won't be long before a majority of people say, oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's, that's the right thing to do. Yep. Because people make their morals up and they choose to do what God says, or what they choose. But we need to walk with God. We need to decide like God says. We need to do what God says. That's what we see in the godly line. That's what we see culminated in Enoch. Enoch walked with God. What are you living for? How do you conduct your life? That's what this is talking about. Paul says in Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ. That's what it means. To live is Christ. Are you living for Christ? Ligonier Ministries says it this way, Coram Deo. Right? In the presence of the Lord. Are you living for Jesus? Is he, is he your Lord and Savior? Is it, are you like me when you were a kid? Well, I go to church on Sundays, but you know, then I do my own thing. Christ has to be your Lord. You have to be walking with him. You have to be conscious that he's there and you want him there. You want to please him. You want to live for him. You want to glorify him in whatever you do. That's what Enoch did. He walked with God. He wasn't sinless, but he serves as a great type to all of us that there is a better world and it's real because God takes him, takes him out of life. He dies at 365, doesn't die, but he's no longer in this world, right? God takes him. God takes him. In fact, the New Testament said he did not see death for God took him. And Enoch was a preacher, uh, the book of Jude tells us, and he actually preached the second coming all the way back before Noah. Jude verse 14, now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these false teachers also, saying, behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment and to convict all the ungodly. And he goes on. That's the second coming. 
Enoch's life was focused on the new heavens and the new earth that's coming. Christ hadn't come the first time yet. And his hope was in the ultimate, the fullness of salvation that would come when Christ would come and destroy the wicked and establish righteousness. And that's what he preached. And the Bible says this about Enoch. Enoch, uh, Hebrews 11.5. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. He pleased God. Again, not in and of himself, but by faith. By faith, it says. He looked to God's grace. He looked to God's mercy. He looked to the promised seed. He said, that seed is coming. And every day he walked with God. And one of my friends, a fellow minister, said it this way. One day Enoch and God were walking as they did every day. And at a certain point, God looked at Enoch and said, you know, it's a lot closer to my house than yours. Why don't you come home with me? Enoch tells us there's a better world. There's a world to live for that we want to lay up our treasures for that. Not here, where moth and rust will destroy, where, where things can be stolen by thieves. We want to lay up our treasures in heaven. And Enoch is the, is the sign. Think of it, for that period of time, Enoch is taken 57 years after Adam's death. God takes one to heaven, assuring the people of God there is a heaven. It's real. It's a place to live. And he takes Enoch as a great type and a great sign and a great promise that if you believe in Christ, you will live with God in the new heavens and new earth. You will never die. And that's the gospel of the genealogy. Enoch serves as a great type, just like Elijah also. And just the two of them. And you ask me, well, what, is, what are they like now? What ha- I don't know what happened to them. I just know God took them. I know it's appointed unto a man once to die, after that the judgment. But there's a whole generation of people that the Bible says, Paul says, we shall not all sleep. But in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, that one generation that's left when Christ returns will be changed. They too will not have to pass through death. But the fact of the matter is we don't have to worry about it because of the gospel. The same gospel that we have today, they had. They knew a lot less. And yet Enoch could walk with God. How much more should you and I walk with the Lord Jesus Christ when we have his word, when we have his sacraments, when we have his body? Let us live for the Lord. Let us have the faith that Enoch had. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this genealogy, Lord God, which though it's in this list of names of many people that we don't know and don't know anything about, yet we know that you were faithful to your promises and through them you kept alive your promise and through Noah and his sons and ultimately through Abraham and his sons and then David and his sons and ultimately the Virgin Mary. You brought the Savior, the seed of the woman who indeed on the cross fully and finally crushed the head of the serpent so that we know that our salvation is secure. Father, help us to live in the light of the gospel and to give you all the glory for it is all yours. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.